Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bloom and Tech. I'm your host, David Bloom, and I am delighted to be back with you as we look at and pick through the rubble of the collision of media, entertainment, and technology to find a few golden nuggets of wisdom we might be able to use to get through our days. I had the pleasure recently of sitting down, uh, virtually of course, and talking with Mike Bechtel. Mike's the chief futurist at Deloitte, the big consulting firm, and also a professor at the Notre Dame uh, University, University of Notre Dame Business School, where he went to college. Mike's previous lives included work at another big consulting firm, solving problems for big corporate clients back in the day, when, where he racked up 12 patents. After that, he became a CTO of a nonprofit focused on uh, programs that support children in their first few years of life, another sort of investment in the future, and a very important one. And he followed that with a gig uh, as a co-founder of a venture capital firm focused on early-stage startups. So most recently, Mike was part of a project with the World Economic Forum, the folks who put on the Davos Summit every year in Switzerland and uh, are focused on the, um, a different kind of collision, the one between uh, private companies, governments, and non-government organizations to try to make the world a little bit better place. And they did a report together looking at what the world will look like after the pandemic eases. We're getting close to something like normalcy here in California. Beginning next week, the major uh, limitations on our, our actions will end, uh, according to the governor, though the state of emergency will remain uh, for lots of bureaucratic reasons that matter but aren't particularly exciting. But we're getting closer to normalcy here, but there is a lot to be figured out in the months and probably years to come ahead. And so I have a great conversation with Mike, and I hope you enjoy it. And without much further ado, we will get to the conversation with Mike Bechtel uh, after this. Thanks. And here's my conversation with Mike Bechtel, chief futurist for Deloitte talking about the project he worked on with the World Economic Forum and much else uh, about the future of the world and how we will come out of the pandemic and its many, many, many impacts. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Thanks. Welcome, everybody. This is David Bloom. I am here with Mike Bechtel, chief futurist at Deloitte Consulting, one of the coolest gigs I've heard of for quite a while, I have to admit. And uh, we're talking about uh, a report that he helped create uh, with Deloitte and the World Economic Forum, looking at where where we're going, uh, which is what futurists do, and uh, also talk about some other things. Mike has a background that includes, he currently teaches, uh, he's a professor of corporate, uh, teaching corporate innovation at the uh, University of Notre Dame, where he went to college. Uh, and has also worked for a venture capital firm. He worked for Accenture early in his career. He uh, worked for an early stage, it was an early stage VC, and he was CTO of a nonprofit, the Ounce of Prevention Fund. So you've got a, a wide array of you know, background that has informed where you are now. Let's talk real quickly about how that shaped what you are now as a chief futurist and what that job as chief futurist involves. Well, David, thanks for having me and, and grateful to be with you here today on a what's a rainy Monday here in the flyover states. When I tell folks 
that I actually have Chief Futurist on my my card. Uh, it, it it neatly divides your your audience into two groups, right? You, you got the group that literally leans in and they say, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then you've got the group that sort of leans back, they cross their elbows a little bit and they say, okay, tough guy, let's hear it. But honestly, the road to being a futurist is through having had multiple lenses. Rule number one in futurism. And don't throw them out, right? I mean, keep those well, lenses. Well, that's it. That's it. It's it's a it, it's a treasure hunt where where you're where you're where you're holding on to the goods, right? When we talk about innovation, or we talk about anything that involves generative work, creative work, synthetic work, as opposed to linear problem solving, the more lenses, the better. And and so it goes with futurism. You can always tell you're in the wrong room with the wrong kind of quote unquote futurist if they start talking about the future singular. You know, the ba the Babe Ruth calling the shot, this is going to happen, mark my words, right? That sort of Nostradamus crystal ball stuff is is trouble. It's toxic. Well, unless you write like Nostradamus, who made it <laughs> so generic and broad that you could put all kinds of possible futures onto any of those little court quartos or whatever, you know, the little... <laughs> Little sayings he had. So good call in the quartos. No, you're right. Uh, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, the charlatanism comes in two extremes: overly broad and overly specific. Right. The, to shoot the curl, we talk about projections. It, it's a lot like a flashlight beam, right? Mm -hmm. It it gets broader the further out it goes. The certainty goes down as it gets distant, a little darker, but. There's some relatively non-controversial probables down the middle. And then there's some juicy antagonistic possibles along the edges. And, you know, if we're doing our jobs right, we're, we're lighting up the whole suite of what's plausible. A lot of P words here. So that our clients, right, straight talk, our clients can figure out what among the plausible looks good to them, right? What looks preferable, yet another P word. And then we backcast, which is sort of an interesting word, right? You think forecasting, okay, forecasting, figuring out the move after the move after the move, like chess. Backcasting says, all right, this version of 2040 don't look half bad. What are the steps we need to work backward from to get there? And oftentimes it ends up in relatively, you know, less than glamorous, need to do moves, right? Put in this data lake, put in this cloud thing. We can get to that later, but that's futurism, you know, responsibly practiced. The futurism's really not been a science, or I don't know if I even want to use that word, but right. a rigorously structured thing for right. very long. I think that probably the petroleum companies were real pioneers in some of this. I know Dutch Shell was noted for this, right, uh, for, sure. for many years. And BP, I think, also, because they had such long investment horizons they had to deal with. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, scenar scenario planning, mm -hmm. uh, as it as it's called when it's at its most buttoned up and, and, and boardroom relevant, absolutely, absolutely comes out of these industries where, you know, you've got multiple billions on the line and you need to understand not just cases, but corner cases. And, and what ifs. 
uh, and, and whether that shows up in the investments you make today or, or, or specifically the ones, you, the ones you say, no, let, let's not do this because however low the chance, the downside of this going south offsets the probability of it doing well. You have to think about the black swan. And right. that, I mean, that's part of this, right? Is the, the writer who, who, uh, whose name escapes me. Uh, who, Taleb. Uh, Taleb, thank you, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, his point was there are things that happen that are very low frequent, low probability, but huge downsides. It's like, that's called 2008. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, and in some ways, 2020, even though yeah. people have been... Yeah, well, def- absolutely. No, uh, everybody saw it coming, and nobody saw it coming. It seems well, like. and you know, David, thinking about the stack of questions here, we'll get back to how does one get into futurism in, in a hot second, if you'd still like to. But I'll tell you, the thing that we've seen with COVID is that it didn't create crazy new trends no. as much as it it, it sped them up. Yeah, it just it just turned the the go the, the go button up to nine thousand. It seems like <laughs> right, right. And the businesses that have been having a better time are the ones that allowed for a little bit of margin, and a little bit of wiggle, and a little bit of flex. You know, ten years ago, so many folks were on and on and on about you know, better, faster, cheaper, stronger, uh, lean, and high performance and all that. And, and those are all virtuous words, right? And, and le- not unlike Nostradamus words, right? Pretty vague. Right. But, but you know, as, as the famous philosopher Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Far be it for me to tell Mike Tyson he's not a philosopher. Let me just <laughs> clarify. Uh, oh, yeah. he, if he wants to be a philosopher, dude, nice tattoos and yes, oh, right. philosopher Mike. Uh, philosopher King. How about that? Right. We used to call you Philosopher King. Plato, Tyson, they're all good. But yeah, sir, yes, sir to that. The recent interest, I think, in future studies comes from this recognition that we need to, at the very least, consider and account for these second and third order possibilities. Yeah. Not that we need to throw away our budgets in our in our in our in our primary goal. But, but we need to be able to look a little further ahead and a little further askew. Yeah, to... off to the side a little bit as yeah. you go. Yeah. I mean, clearly I... one of the things that caused us problems, we won't even worry about the politics stuff, just the inability to create capacity within the country for stuff if something happened, like a globe-girdling pandemic that might interrupt uh, trade routes and all the stuff because we, as you said, we've been doing this just-in-time stuff. We had no no wiggle in the in the pipelines of, of products, and we depended on this stuff getting over. We didn't have any way to deal with it if there was stuff. If China gets shut down, what does that mean over here? We had a cold uh, when they sneezed, and then we got our own problems with COVID. But it, it was months. I mean, we got hit early just with getting stuff over here to, to deal with. And we could see it coming. We couldn't do anything about it. So, yeah. I mean, as one example. Well, no. And, and to your point, so many of the so many of the the problems and the solutions were more anchored in digital and or as I like to say, in bits versus atoms. I mean, when you think about toilet paper shortages, right? 
yeah. followed, you know, followed shortly by patio heater shortages and, and whatever, whatever's the shortage du jour during this last year. PlayStation um, 5. Right. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. The physical stuff was often there. But to your point about just in time this and, and up to the second that, the AI ML models that had been trained were trained on 10 years of normalcy. And so you throw this Taleb Black Swan moment into the AI ML and the model doesn't know what to do. And I, I just think it's fascinating that it wasn't a lack of textiles. It, it, in some cases, it was, it was a lack of data to train the tech. It was a tech problem, not a textile problem. And that's part of a much bigger set of challenges we face with AI, even as we're rushing into its uh, um, promising arms in so many different ways. I mean, I've been thinking about how we're going to deal with all those crummy data sets that have lots of problems with bias that, that, you know, it's all, you know, created by white men. So it doesn't, uh, you know, the, the, the image processors that don't see black people very well or, you know, things like that. I mean, we, we have a whole lot of uh, underlying stuff that's really problematic. And this is, I hadn't even heard about this with the AI not being trained to think about, oh, what happens if well, there's a little epidemic? Well, David, I, I'll tell you, our, our team's done a little work looking into the whole bias and ethics around AI piece. And in some ways it, it relates to the why future studies question, because both of them are about taking tacit, tacit understandings and making them explicit to see whether or not they hold water. I'll give you an example, right? We already, we just talked about how, you know, a futurist is looking further ahead and further afield, uh, you know, bring a little 1912 into it to avoid what? To avoid icebergs, right? The Titanic would have been happy to have a wide angle lens and a telephoto lens on board. Now, all and that- really strong searchlights, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And a much stronger Marconi transmitter. Yes. Yes. But that said, with AI, right? With AI and bias, while there are bad actors here and there, Oftentimes, what you find, to your point, is you have you know, white men coding unintentionally creating these sins of omission that cascade through you know, and become in silico problems. And by the time you look at it, you say, this thing's biased. Nobody, nobody committed malfeasance. Rather, nobody was thoughtful. Right? Nobody was thoughtful. It, it, it's like leaving somebody out at a party. We didn't mean to exclude you. Well, it's still clicky. Yeah. And so step one, make these tacit biases explicit so that what? Machines can begin to roll those in and do better. Yeah, I mean, we certainly need, I think, more visibility into those data sets and those assumptions and those biases and all our algorithms that are helping shape our lives. I mean, this is only going to continue. And, and it, it, I'm curious what, uh, as you all did your work, where you see AI headed with some of this growing awareness and, and the growing embrace. I mean, I, 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 uh, I'm on clubhouse a lot and yeah. not a lot, fairly regularly. And, yeah. uh, uh, at least weekly, and have dipped into some AI conversations about the ethics of AI. And one of the things I heard from a guy who's a long time, he's a consultant now for one of the big banks. And he said, you know, all the conversations going on around AI is way ahead of what the companies are doing, right. because they can't afford to screw it up. If you're a bank and you've got an AI based thing that keeps saying blocking transactions for customers, 
falsely that because they might be suspicious, the customer says, screw this, I'm going to Bank of America, you know? I mean, they're going down the street, so you gotta have it really locked down. So they're not as far along, but they clearly everybody's doing stuff with it. So what's, yeah. what's your all's thought on that space? With my futurist hat on, the first thing I, I, I often tell people is, futurists are closet historians. We spend a lot of time looking back so that we can more credibly look forward. Else, everything is a blizzard of buzzwords, and it's all new all the time. Journalists are this too, by the way. You know, I took a lot of history at Mizzou while I was getting a journalism degree because it's like that's your context, right? Yeah, yeah. Patterns, patterns in the noise, right? Right. And right. and and so to that point, our team put out a future of AI piece a couple of weeks ago, and one of the first things we recognized in doing it was that AI is not new. I mean, the, the, the very the concept and the name go back to 1955. Alan Turing? Uh, it was the successors to Turing, some of the, the, the post- yeah, He was already in trouble by that point with the yeah. British governments. Yeah, shame, yeah. tragically. Awful, but, yeah. But AI, there's this concept called the AI effect, mm. where AI is the vanilla term for whatever the heck computers can't do yet. And so in 1995, I remember I'm in a band in college. My lead singer has this harebrained idea. I'm, I love you, Tim. But it's a harebrained song about how Gary Kasparov is going to compete against the head of Notre Dame groundskeeping in a galactic chess tournament. Madness. But why? No, because... It should be fair. To, we should say that the groundskeeper of Notre Dame uh, at Notre Dame was a very good chess player. I just, we just want to clarify. <laughs> he may have been. His name he was, was really good. You know, he had like, you know, we're, are we doing Bermuda this year? You know, he was like one step ahead on which strain of grass you're putting down on the on the field and all that stuff. He was always saying, yes. Yeah. One, one can only imagine. The reason I, I asked Tim, I said, what, why are we singing about Gary Kasparov? This is a college party. He says, well, that's that guy. He, he's playing IBM in chess. And, in a, you know, I was a geek at the time. I said, playing a computer in chess, he's going, how's that going to work? Well, at the time, and here, here's something we've seen with this AI effect, heading into the next AI milestone, as humans, we really doubt that the machine can pull it off. And you look at the news clippings from right before that match, I'm like, there's no way that this deep blue will figure this out. There's no way. Right. Then the next morning, the next morning after it does it, after it beats Kasparov, we, that our same hubris finds us dismissing it. Well, it's no, not really AI, it's no big deal, it's just chess, right? And so we doubt it until it happens and then we dismiss it. Mm. And then we did that with Go and with poker. And this is all to say, David, here's where it's headed. AIs have turned this corner recently from this sort of C-3PO back of the cockpit telling you what you should have done to this Chewbacca, grab the controls and get you out of harm's way. The difference is agency. It's fast enough to make a difference. And so it's, you know, AI, 1955, whatever, automation, cognitive automation, sounds like the, you know, buzzwords, consulting speak. But the fact that it's calling the shots and doing it, that's what's new and what seems to be next to finally answer your question, what seems to be next is moving into the creative arts, 
the liberal arts, anything that smacks of emotional discernment and empathy and, you know, again, creation. Uh, as, as a colleague likes to say, AI has been the undisputed captain of the math team for 30 years. He's, he's <laughs> but, coming. But they didn't coming. do anything in the art classes. You know, no, just, but, but here he comes. And, yep, and look out. Because, well, believe me, as a journalist, not, not that excited to hear that, oh, any piece of silicon can write a freaking finance story, a sports story without, you know, without even popping up the, the electric draw, the power draw, for God's sake. Yeah. And now they're going to start doing like deep analysis. It's like, oh man, I, I had a hard enough time making a living as a journalist, but <laughs> no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm with you. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. So, so, so generative music, obviously we see these really interesting artistic creations that are being put out there. I'm fascinated for instance, with, you know, who, who owns the copyright? when an AI <laughs> creates a song, right? Okay, so somebody wrote the, the AI program or did all that, and then somebody else fed it some parameters, and then it did what it did with agency, as you said. Who owns that? Boy. That's a big issue, right? It, it, it's a brilliant question. And again, I'm not, not saying that to flatter my gracious host, I, I just think, ownership in a world of generative bots there there's there's your next science fiction book david oh yeah or my first one but uh it does make <laughs> me think. i mean i do read a fair amount of science fiction because i'm always interested in where we're going yeah. and the the best of them you know the, the william gibson's of the world and the neil stevenson's think about where we are and go just a little couple steps down the road here's the yeah. things that are happening and here's where you know or william gibson i mean he had a famous essay uh talking about going to Japan, basically, and using Japan as his stand-in for the future. Right. Um, and I think that's probably still true with what's left of their uh, um, younger generation. It's gotten to be such an old country in so many ways. But the Shinjuku, uh, you know, those kids are, are doing crazy stuff. Um, just a half a step beyond the rest of us, always. Yeah. And yeah. Um, uh, But it does let you think about, oh, these things that are happening uh, like he was writing about virtual idols in 2005, 2007, something like that. You know, Idol, oh, yeah. something like that. You know, and 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 uh, now we have, uh, you know, performances. Uh, was it the the the, the K-pop performances before? Was it a Samsung event and things like that that are all virtual right. creations and things like that? Is routinely so. To, to your point about Gibson, I mean. I, as my, as my old business partner used to say, you know, cliches are cliches for a reason. And, you know, the tire, the most tiresome quote in future studies is the future is already here, not evenly distributed per Gibson, per Gibson. But, yeah. but he was onto it. And, you know, back to origin stories, I was an anthropology major in undergrad in large part because I was so fascinated with that idea of what are things that are broadly human? Versus what are those things that are sort of culturally up for discussion and flex? Right, and right. Little, I had no, no thoughts that I'd be a technologist, let alone a futurist one day. What's hardwired in us and what is right. uh, a function of the time and place where we we are? Uh, Bingo. Society and its people within it. That's an interesting set of questions. And we're finding some things are hardwired within our genetic code. We've got 
I just saw a piece that said something like 99.9, we share 99.9% of the same genes. Over all the terrible things that have happened in the name of racism and differences and you know all that, we're almost identical in, in terms of our makeup. And so the things that we, you know, are sort of basic reactions, whether it's a scream or a moan or whatever are the same, but, but there are other things that are new and different in how we react to them, right? And I, think, I guess that's what you study now that you've given up on anthropology. So. <laughs> well, you know, as a sort of an in, invitation to storytell a titch, I remember it's 1998. I had just cut my long rock and roll band hair and it was time to get a job because my, my bride of 20 years was going to grad school in marriage and family therapy, which has, has paid uh, uh, uncountable dividends. Uh, I don't know about that. My mother's an MFT also. Uh, oh, yeah? And still practicing. She's almost 80 and she's still practicing. Okay. And as, as she might acknowledge, said it's not that it made them better parents, because my father was a therapist too for a number of years, but it just they just knew they were screwing up, so they felt more guilty. <laughs> well, yeah, as a, as a as a practicing Catholic, I'm, I'm exceptional at guilt in the first place. Oh, you got that I, down. Yeah, that's just hard. <laughs> Speaking of things that are hardwired, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. But... Trained by the best. Right, right. So, so it's 1998. I'm treasure hunting for jobs. And I remember hearing that, that these consulting, you know, consulting firms, they, they weren't looking for a certain type of major. They were looking for a certain type of mind. Mm. And I thought, well, I, I, I didn't know what that meant, but I had a type of mind. Sure. And so when I showed up, I, I remember thinking, okay, well, I'm, I'm interviewing against finance and computer science majors, but I've been in the campus computer cluster learning how this worldwide web tomfoolery works. I think Mark Andreessen was still in the, the Midwest at that point. Yeah, yeah, he's doing doing the uh, doing the Mozilla oh, Netscape Champaign-Urbana, right? Doing, uh, doing Mozilla. Uh, so, Mozilla. Yeah. If you could spell HTML in, in 1997, you know, they Total had win. a laptop and a latte and go forth and develop. If you could you find know, a latte, I don't think they were doing lattes back then either. No, might have been a, <laughs> might have been a, a laptop a weighed forty-five pounds. So, oh right, with a zip drive, or a yeah, jazz right. drive. Yeah, jazz drive, totally a jazz drive. Yeah, exactly. But you know, in a, a couple years' time, I found my 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 people, as it were, not in those applying proven best practices to the delivery of you know ERP this or CRM that. Right. I, I fell in with the sort of the Skunk Works crowd inventing newfangled solutions to corner case problems. And so let's real quickly, you mentioned corner case a couple of times. Corner case, I can guess, but I'd like to know what counts as corner case. Is this the black yeah. swan? Is this, uh, or the, at least the dark gray swan off in the corner? Yeah, yeah. So so corner case is, is, is sort of, um, it's, is, it's language to describe the, call it the, the five to 10% of wicked problems that don't lend themselves to proven best practices. You, you know, got to so crack many... that out in a different way is what yeah. you're saying. So what's yeah, that going to be? Bingo. And it, it's permission, David, it's permission to invent, but to invent in a way that leads with need and, 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 and in a way whose purpose is utility, profitability, said another way, if you can scratch an itch, you're going to, your invention is going to have legs. And so working- yeah, you should be inventing to, 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 to solve somebody's problem, right? It's like find a problem and figure out how to solve it, right? Instead of just 
I, mean, well, I think right. that, that's sort of like the, I mean, that's what they used to teach at USC, the, the other end of that competition where I've, I've worked and taught. So find the problem, figure out what the problem is, and then figure out how you solve that. Right. Well, well, right. And a generation of startup founders and entrepreneurs have convinced themselves that focusing on existing problems is folly. That for a quote that's often attributed to Steve Jobs, but it's not sure if he originated it, that customers don't know what they want until they see it. And it became licensed for popcorning these ideas that were not in response to any kind of meaningful issue. In my experience, which isn't to say the way- I think you're talking about pets.com, right? <laughs> selling, yeah, right. Selling dog food yeah. online, yeah. Right, and so in, in, in my experience, if you lead with need, right out of the gate, you're set to have a better time because the worst you could do is you know, fail at trying to scratch an itch. The best you could do is build something really, really, really helpful. And so out of the back of that work, 12 years, 12 US patents, lots and lots of clients later, I had an invitation from an old client who said, hey, uh, remember that tech strategy you did for us? I said, yeah. I said, do you remember, remember the 10 steps in the executive summary? I said, yeah. I said, do you did remember? Did you? Step- yeah, yeah, wow. enough, okay. ish, ish. All right, all right. But right around step seven, they said, do you remember step seven? I said, no, absolutely. No, come on. Yeah. They said it was to hire a CTO. And, and this was the national not-for-profit focused on early childhood education that I worked with for two years. And it, it was a, a really special opportunity to, to sort of do good and do well. Our mission was, and theirs continues to be called Start Early, investing in, in vulnerable children's first five years of life. That's the real futurist though, right? Yeah. You know, is investing in that first few years of a child's life in terms of health and stability and nutrition and education that's really planning for the future or thinking about well it is it spoke to me david because it was this elevating bipartisan value prop right if if you were lefty you 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 had them at hello but if if you were more financially or you know conservatively minded the idea was this dr james heckman at the university of chicago hashtag did the math and what he found out was that every dollar put into a at-risk urban youth returned 17% per year by obviating the need for remedial ed, obviating the need for dropouts, right? Getting out in front of underemployment, unemployment, and even prison. Foster so, care system, bingo. healthcare issues, et cetera, et cetera. All, yeah, food deserts, I mean, the whole nine yards. And so that, that did, in many ways, it opened my eyes to the power of exponentials and early interventions. And so that led me to co-found a venture capital firm with a couple early of stage, early <laughs> stage. Yeah. You got it. You know, Seeing a trend here. It's <laughs> not saplings. We took pages from my, you know, those prior two acts, you know, page one was really inventing newfangled technologies to solve wicked corporate problems. But the wrinkle back to the, the learnings at the, the nonprofit was we didn't have to invent them. Somebody was already likely out there inventing them. And so could we find those startups who'd unwittingly solve the problem? And leverage them and build them up. Bingo. 
Bingo. Everybody wins. We, you know, we, we, we called it casually David and Goliath Incorporated. Huh. You know, one of the things that always is frustrating me because I've, I've done some consulting with nonprofits is uh, California in particular is notorious for just a profusion of nonprofits. And a lot of that is great in terms of the impulse to make things better and, uh, but also have your name on it. <laughs> and, and it's like, you know, we might, there might be a midway between everything being dominated by, I don't know, the United Way, the big five of the United Way or something, and 30,000, I think it's much higher than that now, nonprofits in Los Angeles County, which is a lot of nonprofits. If you had like 15,000 and the, the, the 50 that do this one thing, maybe kind of work together as one organization, they might have more resources. I mean, some of those things I think are really yeah. interesting. No, you're, you're onto it. I, I tell you, there, there was a movement and continues to be in the startup community around, quote, uh, social impact startups. And what's interesting is that the, the legacy philanthropy establishment sort of looks looks to the side like, hey, what, what, what are you on about? What, what, yeah, right, what's that about? Yeah. yeah why, why, are you, why are you trying to profit? But what's interesting is the profit motive in, in that emerging space, it's about sustainability, not not climate and solar and all that. Sustainability meaning that if we can generate enough scratch to pay our own freight, we're not beholden to philanthropists and thus we're not worried about survivability or, or perversely sometimes like, oh, what if we solve the problem? What do we do all that? Right. Well, the yeah. the March of Dimes problem. Right. <laughs> right. Right. The classic, the classic issue of March of Dimes, right. which had a transition from polio when we solved the problem with the Salk and uh, the Salk virus uh, uh, vaccine. It's like, okay, what do we do now? It's like, oh, right. let's, do, yeah. let's do other childhood Ill illnesses and stuff and conditions because there's always going to be something. And God bless them because they do great work. No, like, no, it's, it doesn't it's, used to work there at a high level, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that being it's said, tough. it's a classic organizational challenge. And so what you're saying is trying to create the uh, essentially a trust fund that uh, off the proceeds of which they can live without being in that perpetual money grind, which right. can consume so much of an organization's attention and the things they choose to pursue. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No. And in fundraising, I mean, even in, for a startup, even for pure play startup founders fundraising will eat everything else for lunch if you let it um yeah. it's a big part of the reason startups chase 18 month funding runways is because they if, if they raised any more frequently than that they that's all they'd be doing right right and now they're going to SPACs to kind of make the ipo thing less painful which <laughs> may or may not be a great idea uh yeah. at least in I think a lot of cases we'll find out. I think that's a probably a bubble waiting to, to pop. But well, so you most recently uh, did some work for the World Economic with the World Economic Forum, looking at where we're going. Talk a bit about findings and mm -hmm. what sort of motivation was for the conversation. What the WEF does. I mean, I think people have heard the name, but they may not be really kind of clear on what it is yeah. and where where your work might go with this. So about six months ago eight months ago, we got a phone call from, from a colleague of ours in, in the Deloitte government practice. And he said, hey, I hear you, know, you, you and your little squad are focused on the future. And like, like any responsible entrepreneur, I said, yes. <laughs> and he said, well, our, we have a partnership with the World Economic Forum. And, and for those of your listeners who, who are familiar, 
no, no explanation is necessary for those who aren't not many suffice, but it's a global organization committed to understanding how public and private partnerships can move the needle in favor of humanity's future. Now, depending on your, your values and your politics and everything else that can sound amazing, or it can sound a little bit concerning, but, but at their heart, the world economic forum is out to do great work by getting big thinkers from non-obvious disciplines together to tackle big hairy problems. In this case, the challenge was, hey, coming out of COVID, where is technology and society headed? And how do leaders prepare for the year 2030, the year 2035, the year 2040, knowing that what got us here didn't get us through 2020? So what do we do to get ourselves to, you know, through these other black swans? Great. So what did we find? Well, after six months and 67 pages and 309 footnotes, I'll tell you this. One, we open our report with something we call a brief history of the future. And it's really this, this it's very Asimovian. Of, yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. It is. I'm thinking foundation trilogy or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little, little bit of time travel, L yeah. linguistic time travel. The, the real idea is this. Since about 1830 something, the progression of information technology has been surprisingly straightforward in enduring over three basic stacks. Now, as a techie, these stacks have been present my whole career. It's the interface layer, the I.O., the way we interact with machines. There's the compute layer or the business logic, the crunching of numbers. And then there's the data layer, the, the, the info itself, right? Now, what we learned and what we found was really interesting is that, you know, in the 1830s, when Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace invented the first computer, which was they basically talked, a card loom, right? That's right. Crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Looks like, looks like it's going to crank out a comforter, right? Yeah. And I, a nice doily. <laughs> Giant doily. No, no, no better word in the, in the English language than doily. Mike. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you, brother. I, I'm a, a doily enthusiast as well. But when they talked about it, you, you could imagine, right? Victorian steampunk language, back to your Neil Stevenson and, and uh, that, that, yeah. the Baroque cycle. You know, they talked about a reader and a mill, because how would you crunch numbers? You know, with a mill. And, a, and where would you put data? You know, a store, like a granary. Okay. Well, check it out. 50, maybe 100 years later, you had punch cards subbing in for the reader, right? You had arithmetic calculations subbing in for the mercurial store. You know, you had uh, mainframes that it all sat on. Every 25 years or so, the blizzard of buzzwords underneath it gave way to, for lack of better words, the history of modern computing, right? You had command lines with relational databases and mini computers. And then, for, you know, my, my generation, right? It was GUIs, graphical user interfaces with descriptive analytics on client server, mobile devices running predictive analytics on the cloud, up to, up to the now, right? What is it now? Well, virtual reality. My, my sons are on the corner right now, like slugging at the family room. Predictive Beat analytics. Saber or something, right? I mean, Beats, oh, Beat Saber. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. The real point being, these train tracks have been pretty consistent for the last hundred years and change. We're projecting that they're going to stay pretty consistent. 
clients, media, cocktail party counterparties don't necessarily want to hear that it's measured and known. But it's actually a relief from the the popcorning of frenetic new ideas when you say, no, you know, interfaces, they're getting simpler. They used to need PhDs. Now my daughter asks, hey, kitchen, what's the weather? Right. It's voice voice activated uh, or it'll be gestural. But, you know, it's sort of like Moore's Law, 70 years of Moore's Law, and that's continuing. They have a limit soon it's with physics, right? But right. that's been a steady that law, it was a law, basically. It might as well, well have been. It, it, and Dave, that that's it. You know, one of one of my team members, he, he said a couple months ago, and I loved it. He said, "You know, the only the only language with a bigger install base than Java is is English." And it got me thinking that wait, maybe these smart speakers aren't this faddish, you know, twenty twenty one trivial pursuit answer. This is what it means to be more accessible. And so when you think about and here's the punchline here for this part. When you think about something like chips in brains, right? Brain-computer interfaces like Musk's Neuralink or others. Or the monkey playing uh, Pong that they just was in the news uh, a week ago or something like that. Right. I mean, they, they did implant a brain and it was able to play Pong, which I played as a monkey of 12 well, you when the game both. first came out. You so. and me both. But when you, see, when you see that stuff a la carte, Right, brain-computer interfaces a la carte, or emotional robot companions a la carte, right, or quantum computing. You think eh, it's all fuzzy and fractal, and who cares? But when you see it along these enduring train tracks, you say, "Well, I suppose it's." I, I, I would dare say, you know, as someone with a firm that does not make future-looking statements, as, as the futurist, nonetheless, I'd say. It's something approaching inevitable that interfaces get simpler, information gets more intelligent, and computing gets more abundant. And so we tell our clients, and that's the second part of the report, like, hey, everybody, whatever you're betting on, whatever you're investing in, don't bet against simplicity. Don't bet against in silico intelligence. And don't bet against our capacity to come up with solutions faster than the problems show up. Because you look, you look at abundance, not as a buzzword, David, but you, you look at it more like this, this climate change thing is a wicked problem. Yeah. Well, I, I don't count out our ability to invest in clever moonshots to solve it in an even more wicked way. So don't don't have a poverty mindset if no. we're actually going to grapple with the problem. Right. If we're going to engage with it. I mean, I think that's, to me, the real key is some of the political obfuscations and stuff. But I mean, if we're going to engage with it, I think we can work it out. The question is, how's that going to play out uh, politically more than technologically? Well, at, at the risk of leaning leaning into ideology just a titch, that's why a partnership with the World Economic Forum is actually constructive because we're not talking as captains of industry wishing we could do it. We're talking with government leaders, NGO leaders, and captains of industry and saying, hey, gang. The, tri the triangle there, right? So, right, yeah. right. And, and so the final thing I'd say about the report, David, that, that we're thrilled with, we're in a meeting, a planning meeting, about five months back, and one of my team members, Raquel, she says, you know, these frameworks and, and rubrics are, we believe in them. It's good stuff. Wouldn't it be more compelling if there were stories? 
trust me as a writer i'm all about the narrative yeah. and absolutely she's on to something there tell a story it's much more compelling and much more memorable so well and that and that was it so imagine me sitting down as the the, the project director sitting there with these this this tripartite group of the, the brain trust in switzerland saying we'd like permission to write science fiction in the report and and it wasn't it wasn't scowls and crickets rather it was well tell us more and where we landed was with four great in in my opinion because i didn't write any so i can say this four great pieces of speculative fiction written in the voice of young leaders in the year 2030 something you know one of these characters is sort of a think of a tiktok insta on steroids addict who finds a better way. One of them is a young aspiring doctor in Southeast Asia who is a Jedi physician until she has to help someone locally without her headset or gloves. Um, th this sort of a uh, tingly synesthesia stuff that, that takes something vague like our AR VR future and says, no, we, you got to make sure we don't, we, we don't drop the ball on the basics. This is a little bit like not having anybody making masks in the United States when a pandemic comes along, right? right? Right. You know, you still need to have some capacity to do that real world thing. As powerful as this stuff is, you still need that capacity to, you know, what happens, you know, if you're in a shipwreck <laughs> kind well, of thing. And, and I'll tell you, man, the final call to action in our report is, is, is we, we, we recommend, we say, invest in the two M's, margins and moonshots. Margins, meaning that capacity, that wiggle, that flex that we opened with, but moonshots. You mentioned Neil Stevenson earlier. He wrote a great piece for the Smithsonian mag called Innovation Starvation. Worried, worried about what is our generation's Apollo mission, right? You know, at, all the Gen Xers ran off and built the internet. That's no small feat. But, but where's the stuff? Right. I mean, <laughs> and, the XPRIZE Foundation is trying to deal with some of that, right? I mean, they explicitly right. call them moonshots. And in some cases, it actually is a moonshot, getting something to the moon or a vehicle to run around on the moon. So they do some of that. That's right. that's great. Right. Um, and that's a partnership, private, public. Right. But when you're, but, but and, it's not a and. And when you're, if, if you're a corporate leader, you're worried about quarterly numbers. If you're a government leader, you're worrying about quarterly or quarterly or election cycles. Yeah. Elections. Yeah. Every or, two years or four years, you got to be up. So. And neither, neither, neither of those mindsets lends themselves to the wiggle space or the moonshot space. And so, you know, that, that was really our big finding was, Hey, everybody, our ability to get out of these wicked problems is going to require that we have the flex afforded by margin and the big honking shifts enabled by moonshots. A couple of things that have been in the news lately came up while you were talking. One a bit ago, you know, this this whole blockchain stuff, the, the notion of intelligence attached to the information speaks to me anyway of smart contracts wrapped around nfts tied to something that's an example i guess of what, what part of what you're saying right is all of a sudden this thing this digital object has smarts around its transition through the world the virtual world and beyond 
you, you can tell that we're maybe not in the post-pandemic space, but in some kind of a new space because there's enough breath in the news cycle for <laughs> something right. new. And right. here comes NFTs, right? Right. But yeah, and the, the the blockchain and the crypto stories are exponentially increasing, right? The the headline that that I casually ascribe to to a lot of this back to literature is death of a middleman, right? So so you think of death of a salesman. Well, here comes death of a middleman. Who's our Arthur Miller? That's what, what? I want to know. I don't I don't the know. Arthur Miller of the digital age needs to come along here. Death of they the do. I mean, David, we, we could, it could be a, it could be, it'd be a joint book, but there we go. There we go. But, but here, here's the, here's the deal, right? Something happened with the V1 internet where it no longer mattered what we said about ourselves, right? I want to see what Yelp says about you or what, you know, Amazon ratings what's, say. About what's you. The, the community say about you that they're willing to put their name on or their fake name on or whatever. Bingo, That's bingo. And the so the digital reputation. Yeah, right. Digital reputation, social proof, right? You know, like show me 16 friends who bought it or I don't want to hear it. And bought is a loose term, right? Who endorse you, who, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in some ways that was, Internet V1 was death of a salesman uh, in that I don't need someone to push product. I need social proof on, on concept. This new era, whether you want to call it Web3 or crypto or pick your poison, there seems to be something here around this idea of, I don't want to deal with a hub. I don't want to deal with an intermediary. I want to go spoke to spoke and find value where I find value. And the early incarnations are all, you know, currency, et cetera. But as they get more amorphous and turn into tokens, right now the focus NFTs is on art and helping creatives finally monetize and stopping taking, you know, quote unquote, losing out. That's why they're so excited and they can only talk about that because, oh, I'm going to get paid finally. Right. And you just make endless copies of my song and just hand them out to your pals and I don't get a, and I get one penny from Spotify or something. Right. Yeah. Understandable and I, I think appropriate enthusiasm from from people who people who who are creators who've not been able to monetize because of hub based distribution networks, gatekeepers. Where it may be headed, and this is a big may, is a concept sometimes called the splinter net, where a group of folks are going to live very happily in walled gardens where they'll pay premiums to be part of wonderful branded corporate experiences. That sounds like Apple. Not Another, to name any names, but right. and as an Apple, not fanboy, but definitely a a heavy right. consumer of Apple products. So. Well, right. And that brand, that, that brand and that trust justifies premium pricing and, and people, you know, it's a walled garden, but ask anybody, they're pretty, ha they like the garden. It's a great garden. Yeah. yeah. Contrast that with a parallel developing internet, which is about BitTorrent, crypto, Tor, the dark web. If this may not be an either or, this may be the kind of thing where, we learn that, yeah, you can go outside of these protected digital neighborhoods, but you need to, quote, armor up and, and, and take care now of it. Now it becomes a fantasy novel where you have to put on your armor to go outside the castle, right, <laughs> into the right. wilderness to go 
uh, hack and slash, just like uh, Diablo uh, or another one of those classic, you know, dungeon crawler games or D&D, you got to go out, but then you come back and you hit the pub and you cash in your, your, your loot and all that and, right. and go from there. I mean, I think that's a really interesting thing to think about as we think about the metaverse and companies trying to make that happen. I think certainly Epic just put another, what, another billion in its back pocket so it can uh, keep uh, moving forward to uh, try to uh, uh, build Tim Sweeney's vision of that. Roblox just went public. They yep. clearly are trying to make that happen. Microsoft, between its uh, MR mixed reality stuff and its acquisition of gaming companies and its uh, little deal with the Defense Department for $22 billion for headsets. I mean, it, it's really in some interesting times. As you look at all this, I guess one of the things I should ask is because I write about the business of entertainment on a routine basis. What does the entertainment business look like 10 years from now, 15 years from now? You're talking about a disintermediation ultimately between these providers. And yet what we have is a uh, Hollywood tradition of big projects that involve hundreds of people that are distributed around the globe. And now it's going to be happening in, I think, much more fluid ways, much yeah. more efficient ways with streaming, though um, it's going to be a lot of pain in a lot of corners of the town that I live in. But what does that look like? This other Deloitte survey that I just wrote about uh, mentions, oh, by the way, first generation we've ever seen in the 15 years we've been doing this because they break it down in terms of what's your number one preferred entertainment experience, the Gen Z kids, 14 to 24, don't say, hanging out at home watching film and TV. They say games, music, social media yeah. are all ahead of movies and TV. And yeah. those are gonna be the future. Yeah. They don't, they, it's like movies, those are fine. <laughs> They're okay. <laughs> yeah, right. But I'd rather play a game and that game now has Travis Scott singing in it. And I can share that out to my social media universe of friends, you know, the concentric circles of friends and, and those. And oh, by the way, I could also maybe watch a Marvel movie or something. David, you, as a Jedi at that intersection between tech and, and media, you know, my, my hunch is you've, you, you've forgotten more about media specific stories than I've begun to learn. And, and that's me. That's my Chicago boy showing. But as a futurist, I'll tell you this. And and as a parent, I have three kids. One's 15, one's 11, one's nine. My 15-year-old grabbed me by the nape of the neck, early pandemic, told me about that Travis Scott concert. And he um, was excited. Oh, he was excited. He was going nuts. Oh, well, I thought it was quirky. And then I experienced it and I thought, this is really well done. And contrast that with my nine-year-old, given his age, that wasn't a different concert experience for him. That was his first concert experience and what he thinks it means to have a music event, right? So the takeaway being, when you start to get a generation who's normed to immersive interactive stuff and they don't feel the opportunity cost of missing the old way, it's. It's not a diminished, just like the CD kids never knew what they were missing with LPs, right? Right, right. This crowd doesn't know what they were quote unquote missing. Now, and in fact, they may say, look, 
I, I don't have some guy throwing up on my throwing up on me, you know. Uh, I don't have to worry about parking that costs thirty bucks or waiting right. in line at the concession stand or right or, or a fifteen dollar fifteen dollar uh, Coke, if you will. Right. Um, right. The thing that I would tell you though, so that's that's my parent lens is that mm. a concert for my little guy is Roblox. Now, with my futurist lens, and to your point about disintermediation, what I think is so interesting is legacy now this is going to start out nerdy and jargony but i promise to turn it human i never stopped being nerdy and jargony though so (laughs) we're gonna get along just fine but we're 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 brothers i'm just saying all right good thank you thank you mr blue but but here's the thing every time there's a platform shift it takes a while for the old habits and orthodoxies to fall off so when radio went to tv the first TV shows were like these lame radio shows. Yeah, they were standing around reading uh, right. a play, right? Yeah, right. I mean, it was and, and then they, somebody they were said, doing Shakespeare. Right, you know? and somebody said, we should bring the camera to the desert and make a Western, and the rest was history. Now, what I think has been fascinating with the pandemic, there's a set of old timers, myself included, who say, man, I really miss two-hour movies at the show. But... There's a set of optimists like my kids who say, yeah, why do movies have to be two hours? I've got 20 second, I can scratch 20 second itches on TikTok. And what is something like a WandaVision or a Winter Soldier and um, Falcon, if not a 10 hour movie? The constraints, as I see it as a futurist, the constraints have fallen off and we're just now beginning to realize what was secretly orthodoxy. I mean, I thought that Martin Scorsese should have just made the Irishman into a, a five part, you know, 45 minutes at right. a time series and a limited run series instead of a four hour movie. Because, I mean, that's how we watched it. It was like over a couple of days. It's like right. and that was great. It's just fine. You know, and I think that's going to just matter less and less because you don't have the, the tyranny of the TV programming grid that says it must be 44 minutes to right. squeeze in 16 minutes of advertising and self-promotion. Well, and it's like that. It's like that with music too, man. Yeah, EPs are the thing now, right? I mean, you put out three or four songs just to kind of keep your hand in, and well, well, yeah. And and through that long lens, you know, I'm part of that Gen X alternative indie tradition where, like, you listen to the whole album, man. Stephen Malcolmus of, of of Pavement would want you to watch, oh, right. listen to it all, and memorize the words and know all the guitar licks and right. all the primal screams that would pop up and things like For that. Sure. For yeah. sure. I mean, you, yeah, you don't listen to, you know, you don't listen to even flow. You listen to Pearl Jam 10. Right. Well, right. Fast, forward, fast forward to my kids again, and, and I'm not saying parenting is a prerequisite for futurism, but it helps. Helpful. Not only do, the, to your point, David, not only do they only listen to a song because the, the collection of 12 of them is arbitrary and connected to the old platform, they jump right to their favorite 10 second hook. And then they and, put that on TikTok. Well, well, correct. And so... And remix it, it and do all that, right? Slicing and dicing and slurring. Yeah, and remix culture all the way. Right. And and I think the profit motive and entrepreneurial instinct will find a way. You know, cue Jeff Goldblum, right? Life finds a way. Yeah. I think business finds a way back to, you know, the long lens, how to thrive in a world where the action is spoke to spoke as opposed to um, a big gatekeeping hub. That's going to that's gonna be the challenge for the next 15 years. Right. And figuring out who owns the copyright on generative music from your AI. That's who. 
that's well well done full circle full circle it's the callback man it's all i got uh well mike this has been delightful probably as good a place as any to close up a conversation that could go on about 30 hours probably otherwise um thank you so much i've been talking with mike bechtel the chief futurist for deloitte consulting and a professor of corporate innovation at the university of notre dame and uh, about all kinds of stuff where a could they find catch up with you on linkedin or elsewhere if they wanted to connect if listeners wanted to connect with you thank you kindly yeah at mike bechtel m-i-k-e-b-e-c-h-t-e-l on both twitter and uh linkedin and uh, the report that you did with the World Economic Forum, which they do the Davos thing every year, right? Yeah. So that, yeah. That's the big, the big gathering. Right. It wasn't so big this year, but generally heads of governments and companies and NGOs, as you said, all gather in, the, in Davos, Switzerland to talk about uh, big, big issues. And you're the kind of guy that they have to listen to because they need to understand where it's all headed. Where would they find that report? If you were to go to the World Economic Forum website, you could just look for flagship reports and, and see technology futures, projecting the possible, navigating the next. I'm a sucker for alliteration. Or just Google World Economic Forum technology futures. Technology futures. And you get two for one there because you not only get a really in-depth report, you get four short stories from science fiction, of, of, of future-looking science fiction. So can't beat that. That's a bargain. So anyway. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Had a blast. And that's my conversation with Mike Bechtel, Chief Futurist at Deloitte, the big consulting firm. Really, really uh, provoked a lot of thinking for me as I move forward in the stuff that I write about and the consulting work that I do. And I hope that it was as stimulating for you uh, as it was for me. I think it's good to pull our heads up. As he said, it's difficult for companies to look beyond the next quarter. It's difficult for politicians to look beyond the next election cycle. But it's important that we all think about going forward what our lives and what our world will be like and how we're going to make our way within it. And I was delighted that I could talk about some of this with somebody whose entire job is about looking forward beyond the next few months or couple of years. If you like our show... Please, please, please consider putting a little like on there, subscribing, following, uh, doing all those things. Sharing is also really handy. If you really like our show, there are ways to uh, show your love. Anchor.fm, the site that syndicates and hosts my program, uh, makes it easy for people to throw a few bucks in the till to help keep this media machine rolling along. And any support you might be able to give would be deeply appreciated. Beyond all that, please think about uh, the things here that got you going. I'd love to hear from you. And there are several ways you can do that. Tell me what you thought about Mike's conversation and where we're headed. What are going to be the big changes and challenges that you see coming ahead as we come out of the pandemic? What's going to be different and perhaps what's not going to be different? I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me on LinkedIn at David L. Bloom. You can reach me on Twitter at uh, David Bloom, B-L-O-O-M. And I'm David in L-A, I-N-L-A, on both Clubhouse and uh, Instagram. So reach out one way or the other, say hi, send me a note. You can also leave an audio note through anchor.fm, and I can try and work that into the show. I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts on this stuff about where we're going next. So 
in the meantime, please take care of yourselves. Please stay safe. Please still use good common sense in the middle of this awful pandemic and take care of those around you. They matter too. And be kind. Most of all, be kind. This is David Bloom for Bloom and Tech. Over and out.